Turn in the word to Revelation chapter 2. I'd like to consider some vital tips for building a successful church. But I want us to look at this church in Ephesus. There's a lot we can learn. Revelation 2, beginning with verse 1. Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know your works and your labor and your patience, and how you cannot bear them which are evil, you have tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and has found them liars. You born and has patience, and for my name's sake has labored and has not fainted. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because you've left your first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except you repent. But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Those are make-believe Christians, which I also hate. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Now this revelation that John received occurred while he was on a little island called Patmos. Testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ is what put him on that island. It was a form of persecution. But even in that dark period of his life, Jesus could find him and appeared to him. On one particular day, John heard a voice behind him and turned and looked and saw the Lord standing there in a beautiful garment in the midst of some candlesticks, and he said, John, I want you to write these words to seven churches. The scripture tells us in the last verse of chapter 1 what these candlesticks and stars represent, the stars being the angels and the candlestick representing the churches. But you do need some background on the church at Ephesus. This church was born in revival. In Acts chapter 19, Paul went into the coasts of this area and he realized there were some disciples that didn't know anything about the Holy Spirit. He laid hands upon them. The Bible says they began to speak with other tongues and magnify God. And Paul set up shop there for no less than 18 months preaching the gospel. Bible says the word of God prevailed and spread in that area. And the revival was so great that it affected the culture. People involved with voodoo, black magic, sorcery. Scripture says they brought all of their books of the dark arts together and had a big bonfire. You know when a revival is taking place because it affects the culture. It affects our habits and how we live. And with all of that smoke billowing up into the sky, people knew something was taking place. It was so remarkable that the scripture says Paul would put his hands on cloths 
They would be taken away from him to different people and folks that were sick were made whole. People with demon spirits in them were delivered instantly by the very tangible anointing in those cloths. But the union of silversmiths got together and they were displeased with the fact that all of these people becoming Christian was affecting their market share as far as selling their statuettes for the goddess Diana. And they said, if we permit this man to continue to preach, he'll lead all of these folks to God and we won't have anybody worshiping our idols. So they gathered together in a big arena and they were shouting and screaming, great is the goddess Diana, great is the goddess Diana. And it was so powerful and the peer pressure so strong that they went to one of the Christians' houses and physically assaulted it. But when revival comes, It brings good things, it brings bad things. It brings revival, it brings riot. It brings encouragement, it brings persecution. And we have to know that if God begins to turn families around, the devil's never going to be pleased with that. Yeah. I read once where a friend of mine who had gone into West Africa to preach and in a mighty move over 13 weeks and preaching in Bible conferences in this area, said one night a lady came in and she was screaming that she was possessed of evil, possessed of the devil, and all of these voices were coming out of her. All of this was taking place through the interpreter. He said the saints gathered around her, laid hands on her, rebuked the devil, said the woman fell down writhing and screaming in the church service, but said in a few moments, God had saved her and miraculously she began to speak in English, a language she did not know. Well, the service was great. The move of God was great in that area. But a preacher who was a part of that meeting and a part of that move of God was in an adjacent district preaching the gospel and some people involved with voodoo beguiled him and talked him into going into the forest to preach to them. And he went out there and they killed him and dismembered his body, sent the body parts throughout different regions in that area. Folks, just as sure as God will start moving the devil will do what he can to shut her down. Paul understood that. He even told the elders in Ephesus on one occasion when he knew he'd never see their face again. He said, look, I know that after I depart, wolves are going to grow in the midst of the church. And he said, you don't have to expect them to come from the outside. He said, right here among you are going to be people who are transformed into wolves. And Then he said goodbye. What's interesting to me is that that church was a great revival church. It was a church that had a strong and solid foundation. But now, 20 years, 30 years later, Jesus appears to John on the island of Patmos to say the church at Ephesus is not what it once was. How does a church lose its fire? How does a church backslide? So John writes the words of Christ. 
to the angel of the church of Ephesus. These things saith he that holds the seven stars in his right hand. The omnipotence of God, the mighty right hand of God, the all-powerful arm of God who holds the stars. Naturally, you think of the celestial luminaries in the sky, where in Genesis chapter 1, the scripture speaks of the Lord placing the stars in the heavens for signs and seasons and days and years, which demonstrates here that since these angels represent the messengers of God, that the Lord has shown us that in this area where there are all of these churches, that there's still order. Somebody who's ministering the word to them. If God has a messenger, he controls the message. In ancient times, there were a lot of people who lived their lives in in, in alignment with what they thought were the configuration of the stars. They were people that followed the horoscope and were interested in astrology. But the Lord is saying that here, I want you to know that there are seven churches. I know all of their addresses, but they are under my control because I control the preacher. And he says here that Jesus is in the midst of the candlestick. Now, what is a candlestick or a lampstand? Think of it as a lamp like you have in your home. You turn the lamp on for illumination. In the Old Testament tabernacle and in the temple, there were two rooms, the holy place and the most holy place. In the holy place, there was a showbread table. And in the holy place, you had this lamp. A lamp stand was a single stemmed instrument about five or six feet tall had six branches that came out, came up like this with that single stem coming up. That made seven little branches that came up. At the top of each of them was a small bowl filled with oil with a floating wick in it. And once you lit the wick, it was the responsibility of the priest to make sure the oil remained so that the light would remain on in the tabernacle. This why this is why it was such a terrible thing when Eli went physically blind and let the lamp go out in the tabernacle of God in first Samuel. Since Jesus stands here at the candlesticks, he is saying, I'm the priest. You're the church. I'm determined to keep the fire burning in the house of God. He is at the right hand of the father and he represents us there. We're the church on planet Earth and we represent here him here. Let us not misrepresent him. So he is the one that is focusing on the candlestick. He's he's concerned about King of Kings. He's concerned about a Baptist church. He's concerned about Lutheran and Methodist churches and churches of Christ. He's concerned about his candlesticks. If you say you represent him and you're a Christian, then he expects you to burn with the fire of God. He expects you to be an illuminating presence, shedding the light on the word and on the character of Christ. He's not interested in your man-made traditions, but he's very much interested in what the word of God says. So shine the light on those things that are important to the Lord. He says in verse two, I know the fruits of your efforts and I know 
your labor and your patience. He's been watching them. They probably would not have known that he was watching them. But can you imagine being a Christian in the church at Ephesus and a runner brings this mail to you? And someone who's literate in the congregation stands up and reads this to you. I would have been thinking, God must really love me to be concerned enough to send a letter to our church. And he does. And you ought to take this as a personal letter directly to you. As sure as the mailman brings your bills every week, you ought to be glad that Jesus took the time to say he is understanding of what you're passing through. And he says he knows you can't bear the ones that are evil. That means people that aren't living right. I I see what you're passing through. I can understand the patience that you've had with people. If he says you can't tolerate them. That means there have been some people that they've had to let go and wave goodbye to. Some kinds of sins that should not exist in the church, at times you have to wave goodbye to them and say goodbye to the individuals. Now he says here, you've tried or tested those that say they are apostles. There have been plenty of those in the past. When people read that, they're somewhat shocked that there would have been people in Paul's day claiming to be apostles, just like there are people today who claim to be apostles. But Paul said, you try them. Well, how do you do that? 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, gives you the criteria. When I travel and go to different minister conferences, I very often run into people who want to be called apostle this or prophet, or prophetess, that. But 2 Corinthians 12, notice verse number 12, Truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience, and signs and wonders and mighty deeds. Most people think because two or three healings occur in their ministry, they should be called an apostle. But Paul said here, there should be mighty deeds, mighty exploits. There should be an abundance of patience. I haven't found many people that meet this criteria. In fact, sometimes when people tell me they want to be called apostle this or apostle that, if I know them by their first name, I'll call them brother or sister so-and-so. And I'm telling you, I've seen them get angry. I rate, how dare you call me outside of my title? I'm, so, I'm so-and-so. I said, well, brother or sister is what I'm going to call you. Well, you say you don't get offended by... Titles and such, I never have and never will. I mean, in all the churches that I pastor, everybody knows who the shepherd is, but I don't get offended if someone doesn't call me pastor. They call me Brother Daryl. I'm just as happy. You say, why wouldn't you get mad? Well, my mother named me Daryl, and I've been called that all of my life, so I'm not offended. The only thing I've ever really done is told parents, try to ensure that your kids Call me pastor so they learn respect, you see. But we understand from a scriptural perspective then that God has people that are apostles. But very often these self-appointed people are not those. If you look at 1 Thessalonians chapter number 2, 
you'll see where Paul and Timothy and Silas have been writing a letter. And if you'll notice, verse 6, Paul says, We have not sought glory, neither of you nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. Some people think the only apostles in the Bible are the 12 apostles of the Lamb. That's not true. Paul wasn't one of the original 12, but he's an apostle. I'm giving you a verse right here that says that Silas and Timothy also are called apostles by Paul. I could show you in 2 Corinthians 8, towards the end of the chapter, where Titus is called an apostle, and neither Titus nor Silas nor Timothy wrote an epistle in the Bible. The word apostle simply means somebody that's sent. Somebody that's sent. And the Lord has been sending people throughout the history of the church. He's been sending them to foreign lands. He's been sending them to other cities. He's been sending them throughout this nation. And when they do what he has called them to do, he knows who are the true and who are the false apostles. God works on his behalf or her behalf. So when someone says to you, well, there are no apostles because God's not using anybody to write new scripture. Well, nobody's saying they need to write new scripture to be an apostle. Timothy didn't write a book. Silas didn't write a book, but we are saying that there are people who have been sent as missionaries because the word missionary in English comes from the Latin word missio, which comes from the exact same verb in the Greek that means somebody that's sent. So undoubtedly, God has sent his people. But we have to try individuals to see whether or not they are what they claim to be. Now, I've met a whole lot of people call themselves pastors and don't have any sheep. They don't pastor anybody but themselves at home. But in 1 John chapter 4, in verse 1, just a few pages before Revelation 2, you'll see these words. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. John in Revelation 2 wrote about false apostles. John in 1 John 4 and 1 writes about false prophets. That some people aren't true. Some people aren't real. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. But yet I've met people who confess all these things that Jesus has come in the flesh and they're still in error. Try the spirits. Determine whether or not something really is of God. And then you, you can't just simply ask the question, What would Jesus do? Because if you haven't read the Gospels, then you don't know what Jesus did. If you don't know what Jesus did, how can you come to a conclusion of what he would do? But if you focus on the scriptures, you won't be easily misled. I I know that God helps us sometimes with these things. I had a good friend one time who was in Baton Rouge, Louisiana when I was down there, and he was a teenage preacher like I had been. And I helped him with a couple of his crusades, but he had a very competitive spirit. He was always interested in how big the crowds were and who was in the audience and that kind of a thing. 
I'll never forget. We were in an elevator one day and we were going uh, down, I think. And, and while he was talking to me, suddenly all I saw was just a black cloud where his face was. That's all I saw. He was talking. I heard a voice and I'm just staring at him wondering, why am I seeing this? Then I just started praying, but I knew in my heart God was saying, withdraw yourself from his company. I started backing away slowly, but surely didn't do it immediately, but just little by little. He'd call. I wouldn't connect. He'd ask me to participate. I wouldn't get involved till I just moved on out of that. Tiffany and I came up here. We were starting the first church over in Red Cloud, and then we were getting started here. And I made a call down to Baton Rouge to ask about some friends and to see how some folks were doing. I said, whatever happened to so-and-so? Because he liked to call himself apostle. He said, oh, uh, Brother Darrell, hate to, hate to have to tell you, found out he got involved with some, some bad stuff with the Bible college students and there was homosexuality and everything else involved. I said, mercy, mercy. But see, God had already shown me and God will reveal things to you at times to keep you out of trouble. He has to do that. You can't fall for everything. There was a lady one time running around the body of Christ who everybody was saying feathers from heaven were appearing in the sanctuary. I mean, it was weird, but I mean, they had a whole lot of people bought into that. And sure enough, I mean, she was holding these big meetings, thousands of people. But but one day a gentleman had talked to Lester Summerall and told him about it. And Lester said, well, here's what you do. You get your camera when she's in the service. You just follow her around because she might be able to fool a lot of people with the sleight of hand, but she's not going to fool that camera. So she was in Tulsa at a church and Willie George had his camera crew and they followed her around in that service. And sure enough, they found that in those big sleeves of hers, she had feathers and she'd go behind the piano and shake and one would fall. And she'd come over here and shake and one would fall. But I'm telling you, there were thousands of people that fell for that. I still remember when the gold dust was popular. People were saying gold dust is falling in the sanctuary and you see it floating in the air. Folks, all anybody would have had to do was get a little bit of whatever was falling and put it up under a microscope and find out what kind of mineral substance it was. Paul tells us in the last days they'll be seducing spirits. John says to us in this book, don't believe every spirit. Yeah, there was a man years ago in this area who's supposed to be a prophet. And he'd be in services and folks thought he was truly anointed of God. And behind closed doors, he was beating his wife. How about that? Prophesy in church on Sunday throughout the week and beat your wife behind closed doors. That's what he was doing. And so he fell out with the leadership of this one church. And so a pastor called me and said, Brother Daryl, just want to let you know so-and-so has left our church and he's kind of wandering around out here. Just want to let you know because he, he, he may end up coming to visit you. I told my pastor friend, I said, oh, don't you worry at all. I said, I give you my word. He's heard me preach He'll never come to one of our churches. He never did, but he's still out here floating around. Uh, one time, still talking about don't believe every spirit, but try him. Uh, one time I had a pastor 
who was spreading the rumor about me saying, Brother Darrell quenches the Holy Ghost in the church, just shuts it down. That's what he said. And they were telling me about the, the, the person that they claimed I shut down. Well, they didn't hold, know the whole story. See, there was a lady in one of the churches one time who was shacked up with a man she wasn't married to. And he was a felon from out of state. And the authorities and one of her relatives had called me and told me about all of this. So the lady didn't know I knew. So she'd come to church and she'd have a tambourine. And I'm telling because the man, he could play the guitar, but he never did come to our church. But she had the tambourine and she'd just be in there dancing, just praising the Lord, you know, living in her fornicating life. And I mean, just having the time of her life there in the service until I found out what I found out. And then I just kind of eased on over to where she was in the middle of the tambourine dance one service. And I said, would you please sit down? And that ended that. Some people will murmur and complain about things they don't know anything about. See? You let the flesh manifest itself in that church and have positions of power in the church and the devil will collect it all as worship. And say, these people honor me and love me. Jesus says to this church, you say or they say they're apostles, but they're not. Now, barring a great manifestation of the spirit, one of the best ways to discern someone is to fill your your heart and your mind with the word of God. Because the scripture says the word is a light. Unto your feet, a lamp unto your path. That means it's an illuminating thing. It's a living thing inside of you. And the Bible says out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So one of the best ways to discern what kind of person you're dealing with is to listen to them talk. Listen to them talk. When somebody comes to me and they say, Pastor, we heard the pastor of so-and-so church at the senior center, senior citizen center the other day at lunchtime, and he was telling one dirty joke after another. I said, what did you learn from that? He said that he's crude. I said, right, but he's got an unclean spirit. See? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speak. Why does a man or a woman want to constantly use foul and vulgar language? It's because that heart, that cup is overflowing with it. And you don't have to try and pry it out of them. If it's in them, it's coming out. They can try to restrain it. They can try to limit it in the presence of certain people. But eventually it's coming out. Those dirty jokes will come out. It's in them. So discern what's taking place. Be willing to listen to what you hear. You talk to somebody and they're filled with pity and they're very weak and they're the victim all the time. You're dealing with somebody who's defeated in every area of their life. You've got to use your conversation to help build them up and strengthen them. Otherwise, that'll fill your head and you'll become like they are. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. So notice verse number three then. You've got patience for my name's sake. You are ready or you haven't given up even though you've been tired I've been weary in the work, but I've never been weary of the work. My love for God keeps me 
from backsliding. But if you, if you don't persist in a personal, passionate relationship with the Lord, you'll grow tired. Christianity will become tedious and pretty soon you'll faint. Now, what does a fainting spell look like? Well, if you sit there long enough and hold your breath, you'll pass out on that chair. Yeah. And if as a Christian, you cut yourself off from the word of God, from fellowship, from prayer, from spending time with God, it's only a matter of time before you begin to fall away. You won't want to hear Christian music anymore. You won't want to be around Christian people anymore. And the sicker you become spiritually, the further and the faster you'll fall away in your fainting spell. But Jesus, he looks at all of this and notice what he says in verse number three. You haven't fainted despite all of the hypocrisy, despite all of the error. You've been consistent, but I do have one thing against you, and that's that you've left your first love. Isn't that interesting? That you can be in church consistently and yet fall away from the one you say you love the most. That you can read the Bible every day and backslide the whole time you're reading the scripture. That you can sit on a chair or in a pew and week after week should be growing closer to God but falling further and further away from God. Happens to people all the time. Here you'll find somebody who's trusting God and believing for a miracle in their home or for a miracle in their body, but the miracle isn't coming as fast as they want it to come, and they will read the word devotionally, they will hear the word proclaimed, they will listen to it on radio and television, but because God is not moving fast enough, they become offended, and the love and passion they once had, they no longer have. Yeah. Your first love. Do you even remember your first love. And you remember the first time you thought it was love. I thought I loved my first grade teacher. <laughs> Miss Hope. I did. I, I pedaled my little bicycle around the corner to her driveway and volunteered to do anything from her. I would go out in her yard and gather up dandelions just to give her a bouquet of them. I thought I loved Mrs. Hope. But we have to know the difference between love and that other word. See? To love someone is to have passionate, emotional, and a heartfelt relationship with them. It's love. Love is constant. 1 Corinthians 13 makes it very plain. There's a big difference between love and lust. Love is when you have this, this, this feeling that you don't ever want to end. It's not about a natural pleasure, although it's pleasurable. But it's a love that's deep down in your heart for someone. And you know when you are in love with someone because you don't want to be apart from them. Now, when I was a single preacher, I think I may have mentioned this on Tuesday night, when I was a single teenage preacher, I had a whole lot of pastors that would invite me over for dinner after Sunday service, you know, and things like that. And they always positioned me so I'd be somewhere near their daughter. Because they're, they're working out this whole matchmaking thing, you know. But, I mean, there, there never was a pastor's daughter that I was interested in. 
And when I was overseas in the military and the, the guys were doing all of that stuff, getting together with different girls in Turkey and in Saudi Arabia and other places, Japan, never was interested in any of them. There wasn't one of them I wanted to spend the rest of my life with. I knew the call of God on my life. I knew it had, I had to have somebody to fit into the call. See, I knew that. But then when I was in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, I wasn't expecting to run into anybody. Down there working one day in the, the mail room in between preaching engagements. Somehow they'd got Tiffany over there and she was sitting over there with another lady. And I saw her over there and I thought I'd go say hello. I walked over and said hello and she smiled and I've been saying hello ever since. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, no goodbyes. Just hello ever since. But a lot of the other folks who were Christian, I can say I love them. But with respect to her, I can say I'm in love with her. There's a difference. Jesus says to the church, you left your first love. Then they have to read that and wonder what have we done or failed to do that has caused our passion to wane. Here's the cure in verse number five. Remember, repent, do the first works. Here's how you build a great church. People have to live with a memory. Now, what what was your life like in the beginning when you first fell in love? What were those things that you did in order to to get yoked? It's that memory. See? It's that memory. Little things like that are what drive us, because if if all you have is a memory, you still have something that other people don't have. Because there are people that have never known love. See, I spent a lot of years like that. I didn't get married till I was 29. So I, I had to sit through marriage conferences when I was single. I had to listen to people talk about things of which I had no idea on this earth what they were talking about. They had a memory of it. But when you have a memory of it, then even in your worst times, you can fall back on that memory and keep going. So that's how it is with your relationship with God. When you're having your worst day as a Christian, when you're having your worst day and you're under attack of the devil, you can still remember one of your better days when God did something great for you. Meditate on it. Think about it. Consider how he raised you up, how he blessed you, how he prospered you, how the devil fled from your presence because you stood firm. Yeah. So he says, remember, then repent, be honest enough, humble enough. To be able to say, Lord, I've been wrong. And there's absolutely no reason, God, why I should have grown cold in my relationship with you. There's been no reason why my attendance and fellowship should have dropped off, why I should ever have stopped reading the Bible or praying and talking to you. Just because I'm busier at work doesn't mean I have less time for you. Repent. And to repent means to change your mind. And in changing your mind, you change your behavior. 
And when you do so, that's genuine repentance. It's not repentance if you don't change your behavior. So he says, after you've repented, do the first works. Go back and do what you had when you had that initial fiery, fervent, passionate feeling. You say, well, pastor, I'm doing the first works, but I don't have the feeling anymore. It's not about the feeling. It's about obedience. Do the first works. I don't know that a feeling is going to come back, but I can tell you that eventually God will cause that fire to begin. It will. Yeah. When I've had to sit with people in marriage counseling, I say, what's wrong? I say, well, I don't love her. I say, well, that's easy. Love her then. You're making it a noun. It's a verb. Do it. Love her. See? Love her in a wonderful way and just go opposite of what you're doing right now. But if you make love a noun, you'll never establish, reestablish your relationship with God the way that it should be. And he says to the church, now you can follow my advice or go your own path. But he said, if you go your own path, I'm coming quickly. And I'm going to remove the candlestick. What does that mean? We're going to shut the church. If you're not going to represent me the way I deserve to be represented, it's better for you to shut the doors of the house of God than to claim my name and do what you want to do. See, I'm married to that pretty little girl there. If if I'm going to go out and step out on her, then it's better for me to just dissolve this thing than to just shame her. She took my name in marriage, so it's better for her to just dissolve it than to go out and just be with every Tom, Dick and Harry while she's bearing my name. He says, if you're not going to change, we'll shut the doors of the church. Even it says that in Malachi. He says, you offer to me blind, lame sacrifices, offer it to the governor and see if the governor would be happy. You don't even treat me this good. See? Well, we need to understand that the Lord wants us to honor him in his name. And so folks, stand on the word. Trust God. Don't let the devil run you out of your place in your position of faith and trusting God, having confidence that he can turn it around. Verse 6, they didn't like those make-believe Christians, and the Lord didn't like them either. He doesn't like them. That's what he says right there. He said, you hate them. You dislike them strongly. Here's what Jesus says. So do I. So the Lord doesn't even like fake Christians. He doesn't like hypocrites. What's a hypocrite? An actor. It's a person that knows how to perform. See, A hypocrite was the old Greek actor that would get up on stage and could perform in like a lot of the old Greek tragedies. Skeelys and a number of them that wrote all of those old plays. And hundreds of people would come out and watch those. And they were called hypocrites up on stage because they would perform with a mask in front of their face. That's how they portrayed the different characters. The Lord says, I don't like people acting like that. But if you have an ear to hear what the Spirit is saying, I'll hold out a promise to you. To the one that overcomes, I'll give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. And if you've studied the seven churches, you'll know that the promise that he holds out at the end of every letter to a church is something that he talks about again later in the book of Revelation. The tree of life speaks about it at the end of the book. It being in heaven, in the midst of the paradise of God. 
God wants us to be an overcoming company of people. We're not a defeated group. We are overcomers. And to be an overcomer means that you come over the obstacle. You face up to the challenge and you don't let it defeat you. But you stand strong in the midst of every circumstance, knowing that Jesus is standing in the midst of the candlesticks. and He's watching us and he's watching other people. I hope and pray that what he sees when he looks at us as a church is different than what he sees when he looks at a lot of other people. I'm sure there are a thousand things we could do here to be a better church. But the one thing I know we must do in order to remain a church is to remember, repent, and do the first works. If we ever lose our zeal for God, we'll be a memory. There are probably a thousand churches that close every day across this nation. Tens of thousands closed in 2020 that are never opening again, some of which closed that shouldn't open again because it was a misrepresentation of the word of God and of Christ. But God help us to be strong in him and in the power of his might. Amen. Amen. How many of you want to be an overcomer? Amen. How many of you are an overcomer? See, there we are. We're an overcoming company of people, folks. We're not going under. We're coming over. God hadn't planned, assigned any defeats for your life or for mine. But victory is what he has for us. Let's stand tonight. Let's stand. Yes. What do we do when we come up against a challenge? Face it. We overcome it. When the devil speaks to us, we discern it. He that has an ear, listen to what the Spirit of God is saying. This week, I give you my word. You're going to have an opportunity to discern somebody's spirit, whether it's of God whether it's the flesh or it's the devil. But folks, when you realize it's contrary to God's word, whatever is in that person, don't let it get in you. Be strong enough, be bold enough, be audacious enough to make sure that you're going to let the word of Christ dwell richly in your heart in all wisdom. And it doesn't matter if they call you names and call you self-righteous and everything else. All I know is you don't let anybody come into God's temple that ought not be in there. Don't let their unbelief, don't let their anxiety, don't let all their fears in. You live your life as an overcomer. Keep fighting the battle in Jesus' name. Yeah. Father, we are so grateful that your word is true. And when we consider all that you have done to produce a company of people that would follow you strongly and walk in your steps, we want to be part of that company. We thank you that we're blood washed, blood bought. We thank you we've been redeemed by the blood of the lamb. And we are grateful that you have caused us to be more than conquerors through Jesus Christ that loves us. So, Father, I pray for every man or woman that's in here right now, that they would see who you have created them to be, called them to be, anointed them to be. And I pray that every one of them would be strong witnesses for you in this region, bold, 
unashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that when you give them opportunity to share the good news with other people, let the mighty conviction of the Holy Ghost come upon folks. Father, let people fall to their knees in the parks and in the grocery aisles as they come in contact with people that love you. Let our hug, our embrace, our handshake bring the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray that millions would be comforted around this earth, but more importantly, hundreds would be touched in this region by your work through your church. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen, 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 Amen. What a